thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And friends, I just have to begin today's podcast with a confession. Over the last, oh, week or so, particularly since the decisions of the Supreme Court at the end of June involving the Second Amendment and Roe versus Wade and its reversal, since, since those came out, God has, and I'm going to use this word, has debased me. And I don't mean that in the, in the sense that, you know, you or I might try to debase the other for exalting ourselves or for putting the other down. or uh, But truly, God has put me in the dust, like Job, you might say, so that I might better see the greatness and the glory of God in ways that I had never seen and ways I'd never appreciated. Oh, I, I, I said the other night to a group of people, if the church needs to repent before there can be revival, then, then I can't even get past the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not because I don't believe in God, but because I have not appreciated the full scope and content of what Genesis 1-1 says in the beginning, God. God created. I've come to see this doctrine of creation, this doctrine of cosmology, with its implication for what we've talked about for metaphysics, for things like values, like love and truth and beauty and um, good and bad and evil and righteousness and justice. If, if our cosmology is wrong, if we don't begin in the beginning and, and take that first verse of the Bible as absolutely true, then we have not taken the God of the Bible who says there shall be no other gods before me because there can't be any other gods before me. And so what I'm about to confess as I go through some stuff from the Dobbs decision on abortion is how godless my view of history and law has been. Now, I was taught, as I now look back, a most ungodly understanding of law in law school. And I have carried it with me for the last, uh, well, since I graduated in 1983. And, and while I stood for biblical values, I just didn't appreciate this thing called common law. And, and for the last six years, ever since the Supreme Court's decision about same-sex marriage, God has just been pressing, pressing, pressing this issue of common law on me. I think I've explained it before, but it, but it arises out of the fact that, that I realized marriage never originated in government-issued licenses. And, and so when the Supreme Court says, well, you created marriage by virtue of these licenses, and now you have to interpret your license law to say marriage is no longer defined and predicated on there being a male and a female. I said, something's wrong. The common law would have said, no, no, that, that's not true. And, but God has now helped me to understand the common law 
in ways that I've only begun to scratch and, and, and grab hold of and see. And I hope today it will begin to make more sense to you. Oh, my friends, it is so foundational to get the understanding of common law and the foundations of common law correct because that foundation has been destroyed. Yes, you heard me. The foundations of common law have been destroyed by the United States Supreme Court and our law schools and therefore even in the minds of Christian lawyers and it all comes back to our view of creation, cosmology, and specifically the sovereignty of God expressed in the providence of God over all that he has made from the beginning to the end. So the other day I, I did a, a, a Zoom call with some friends and I said, look, history was determinative for both sides in the Dobbs decision. Okay, Alito's opinion said we're going to begin and we're going to look at the history and Justice Breyer said, well, we're going to look at the history too and their views of history didn't align as particularly it relates to the development of law. I, I don't want to get too far down a, a rabbit trail here, and I'll come back to this maybe in another podcast, but, but into the development of law. Now, common law has a long historical tradition going way back to Bracton and William Blackstone. So we're talking into the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. The Supreme Court has said the Constitution was, was written in the context of the common law and it must be understood according to the common law and its history. The Supreme Court has said that William Blackstone and the common law, it, it provided the nomenclature for uh, our founders. That was, that was the terminology they, were, they understood so that when they used certain words, that they understood them in the context of how the common law used those words. So both the dissenting and the majority opinion in Dobbs talked a lot about the common law. But, but what I realized is that you can talk about the common law all day long and still not understand what it really is and that what our courts, well, I should say, a majority of the people on our court, what a majority, a vast majority of those in our law schools teach is a different understanding of common law that is devoid of God. Now I want to tie this into some things that, that I've said in the past, but let me, let me say this, I, I, I'll repeat it twice in case you want to write it down. In past episodes, you, you'll recall that I, uh, in talking about the prolegomena, that a seminary professor had said, look, all thinking is circular. Remember we talked about it with Matt Walsh's interview of people about what a woman is and how Matt Walsh's own understanding of a woman was circular. The seminary professor said, all thinking is circular. You just need to be operating in the right circle. And, and so here's my proposition for you today. Any view of history and thinking about history, now that's what what caught me, this is, this is my own words, but even my thinking about history that does not have God as its starting place, Jesus Christ as the eternal and historical point of integration of all things, 
and God as its ending point, its, its telos, where it's moving, where it's headed, is a direct attack on Christianity. Now let me read, say that again, and I'll give you the Bible verses for it. Any view of history and thinking about history, which means how do we think about the common law? We can think about common law, and our thinking about common law can be unbiblical. Common law is rooted in our history, so we can think about the common law then, biblically or non-biblically. So here's what I'm saying again. I'll start again. Any review of history and thinking about history that does not have God as its starting place, Jesus Christ as the eternal and historical point of integration of all things, and God as its ending point. It's telos, it's, it's direction, where it's headed, is a direct attack on Christianity. Where do I get that from? Romans eleven thirty six. It sums up, in essence, in one verse, the entirety of the Bible. From him, through him, and to him are all things. It starts with him, the middle's with him, and the end is him. He is his own end. He is his own purpose. He is his own telos. Because anything other than him would be beneath him to have as his telos. To God be the glory. Amen. You'll also get it in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, where it speaks first of Jesus Christ as being the head of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. And we've talked about in that past episodes using uh, statements from, from Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics on, on God and creation, that he is the firstborn of all creation. He, he is the full communication of all of who God is to the Son so that the Son in a, in a relative sense, can communicate to the rest of the creaturely communication. We've said that if, if God the Father could not communicate the fullness of God and the only begottenness of the Son, if he couldn't do that in an absolute sense, communicate who he is, well, there could be no creation. He couldn't communicate to his creation. That means there is no revelation in creation, and there could be no revelation in word. I mean, this is so fundamental, and I'm just now really starting to understand it. But then, right after he says that, then he talks about the firstborn of the dead. So that, in other words, Jesus Christ is the integration point. The Son of God is the integration point for creation and recreation, that he might have preeminence in all things. That's why I would say, if your thinking doesn't start with who God is and what the Trinity is and then how that pertains to creation, you will get off base as I did with my understanding of law and common law. You see, common law was understood to be the working out, the telos within the sphere of law and civilization and culture and the regulation of culture ordered by law that was from the beginning. You, you, you may have heard me say, your protology determines your soteriology, which then determines your eschatology. And I want to come back to eschatology and why we're so negative and, 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 and pessimistic in, in evangelical circles today. But the protology is this is God's creation, and he is revealing himself in all of his creation. And, and because it's his creation, he controls the direction of that and where it's going and all the things that, that would pertain to all of creation because they all can influence the direction. God is superintending it all and so as, as particularly the common law was worked out by our Puritan forebears, they were working out the purposes of God relative 
to law taking the fundamental concepts of God in the beginning and that God has normed all of his creation to operate according to laws that are harmonious and fit together and are beautiful and produce beauty and, and though impacted by and misdirected by sin there can be a restoration of the mind we can have the mind of Christ we can begin to see that this is my father's world and it's perfectly ordered and in fact it's so perfectly ordered that he's ordering evil to help accomplish his purposes and that was the development of common law it was the working out of our cultural mandate in Genesis 1:28 in the sphere of law and I didn't grasp that until the last couple of weeks I just admitted to you but see to not see the common law as that is really to break the first commandment. I had something else as God over history, over the development of history. Providence was, uh, somehow man was sort of in charge of providence, I guess, and, and there was, I don't know, it's just terrible. So thanks for bearing with me while I rant about myself. But listen, I, I want to get into the Dobbs opinion now. I want to begin with a quote from B.B. Warfield's little book, What is Faith? I would encourage you all to, to read it. It's very good. Uh, Warfield was the head of uh, Princeton Seminary uh, in the early 1900s. I think he founded Westminster Seminary as Princeton began to become more liberal. But uh, in that book, he makes this statement, which just fed into all that I was saying, is no historian can be altogether without presuppositions. Now, that goes back into what we've been talking about, too. Remember the discussion that we've had about the difference between Francis Schaeffer and Cornelius Van Til, the people that believe we start with reason to come to know God versus those who say, no, we do know God. We suppress the truth about God. But if we don't start our theology with theology, with the fact there is a God and that God has revealed himself and we can know God, then we can go nowhere. Man's reason is a process, but it's not a fount of knowledge in and of itself. So see, all, all this ties together. What's the presupposition you bring to history? And I would have confessed providence and the sovereignty of God, but I didn't, I didn't bring it down. I didn't bring heaven to earth, you might say, as in the Lord's Prayer when it came to understanding the common law and civil law and the relationship between civil law, which is essentially statutory law, and the common law. Now, let me get into what Breyer said, because Breyer really, in his dissenting opinion in Dobbs, laid out the postmodernist view of history, and to be honest, it was not challenged by Justice Alito. Now, you might say, well, uh, how, how could he have challenged it? Well, the, whoever writes the majority opinion, um, also knows they're swapping drafts of opinions back and forth what the dissent is going to say. And, and so Alito touches on a few things Breyer says, but, but not really this view of history. He lets it alone. Now, Alito was trying to write an opinion to thread a needle because Kavanaugh uh, was not going to reverse Roe versus Wade if the opinion was worded in such a way as to undermine the Supreme Court's past decisions grounded in human autonomy and a sexual libertine, okay? He, he was just not going to address any of the other cases uh, that we've talked about. Griswold, Eisenstadt, United States versus Windsor, 
uh, the Lawrence v. Texas case about sodomy or Obergefell about same-sex marriage. So uh, Alito was trying to do the best he could to get five votes to overturn Roe and, and he had to kowtow a little bit to Kavanaugh who I think will soon prove to be the Justice Kennedy of our age, but that's getting off the subject. So let me, let me talk now about what Breyer said and, and uh, comment on it. Here's what he said about history. The framers, both in 1788 and 1868, understood the world changes. Well, obviously it does. So, Breyer says, they did not define rights by reference to specific practices existing at the time. And, and that's partly true and partly not true. The contention here was they didn't define the rights of individuals in regard to abortion because that would have been a specific practice, you see, and, and they weren't concerned about specific practices per se, and, and that's true. Now, there are some specific practices that are put into the Bill of Rights, like to a speedy trial, the right to have uh, an attorney, a right to due process of law, although, you know, there's you have to give meaning and content to what constitutes due process, but the right to uh, confront your accusers. All of those things were practices, and, and so they did, in the Bill of Rights, spell out some practices. So, in a sense, Breyer's not correct. Uh, but it is true, the Constitution is not a code book like the 70 volumes of statutes that we have here in the state of Tennessee. So Breyer continues, instead, the framers defined rights in general terms, now listen to this, to permit future evolution in their scope and meaning. Now there we have to draw a line. You see, the framers were actually codifying pre-existing rights and principles that had been developed through the common law. Now, in his second amendment decision, Clarence Thomas, which was joined in by five other justices. So even Kavanaugh joined in to what, uh, what Justice Thomas said in his Second Amendment case. But here's what Thomas says. In, in looking about, uh, about gun rights, he said, in, in our past cases, we look to history because, and now he's quoting a, a previous case, it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right. I'll come back and talk about that in a moment, but Thomas continues. The amendment quote, now again he's quoting another previous case, was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. Now I love that, that concept of inherited. It, it sort of conveys this notion of covenantal succession that as we've learned things and we've refined and improved and, and further developed our understanding of law in the course and the context of history as it's changed, we've, we've passed those things down and we inherited them from our ancestors. And so Thomas continues, after surveying English history dating from the late 1600s, along with the American colonial views leading up to the founding, we found, quote, no doubt on the basis of both text and history that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms, end quote. Now, let's just talk about this for a moment. What is critical to what he's saying here is that the Constitution was codifying a pre-existing right, a pre-existing right that can be traced through the history of the common law 
and its development. Now, when he goes through it, he talks about javelins and all kinds of things, which we don't have a lot of jousting matches today. But there was a principle about the right of the individual to protect and defend himself because it's rooted in the one of the three fundamental rights, the right of personal security, which we've talked about on this podcast, which involve my life, my limbs, my body, my health, and my integrity. So I had to have a right to protect and defend myself, ultimately rooted in the fact that God has, has given me government over myself, which entails all of those things, and I owe duties to God in regard to who I am, okay? So it's a pre-existing right. That means the right was not found in statutes. Statutes may have codified what already existed, but they did not do something novel, like let's sit around in a room and think, should we have a right to bear gun arms? I, I, I don't know, what do you think? Let's do it back and forth, back and forth, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, let's put that in the second, let's, let's make that the second amendment. No, he said we weren't putting down something novel. It was already there. Now, my friends, common law got killed by the United States Supreme Court in 1938 in a case called Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. It was the, the nail in the coffin of the historical understanding of common law, like I've just described it, as historical development of key underlying principles and their application from jousting to handguns to rifles, okay? But underlying the whole analysis was this understanding of what it means to be human, our duties we owe to God, and, and our right to defend ourselves that we might carry out our duties before God. Okay, so here's what the Supreme Court said, 1938, Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, and they're, they're, they're relying on Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who had been writing for the last several years on the United States Supreme Court to say there isn't any common law such as our founders would have understood it such as what David Fowler described at the opening of this podcast, that common law is, is the working out by God in his providence, his law, to order things according to his law and to suppress the wicked and the unrighteous and the unjust. No, 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 no. And, and here is what they said in that case. Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, the doctrine that there's a common law that transcends state borders, transcends the federal government, that, that is over all of us. He says that doctrine rests on the assumption there is a quote, and he's quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes, transcendental body of law outside of any particular state, but obligatory within it unless and until changed by statute. See, that is the denial of God. That's the denial that essentially whatever the common law may be, it has nothing to do with any transcendence that covers the whole of the United States and its development over the course of time. We're not rooted in anything that's transcendent or real or has, now here's the key point, any essence. Remember how we talked about postmodernism and Derrida who said if there isn't a God, then nothing can have any true objective meaning or essence. And that would have to then be true of law. It'd have to be true of law. History can't give you any enduring 
true objective values or principles, and that's why Breyer was saying they put down general principles so that they weren't tying themselves down, you see, and were permitting future evolution in their scope and meaning. That's Derrida, that's postmodernism. Words have no real historical meaning. Oh yes, the word might have meant something in 1688, it might have meant something in 1788, but because history is just a series of random acts, they can't give us anything that's true, any true history, reflecting anything that's really true or transcendent, so we're free to expand these words into new meanings. That's why we don't know what a woman is anymore. Do you see how the question, what is a woman, and the inability of Justice Brown Jackson to, to define it, is rooted right here. Yes, we might have known what a woman was in 1868, the 14th Amendment, but, but that doesn't mean that's what it means now. It's evolving. There are no eternal principles because there's nothing objective to which they correspond. Now, notice what he then says. Over the course of our history, now I'm quoting Breyer again, this court has taken up the framer's invitation. It is kept true to the framer's principle was rooted in the fact that there is a God who is sovereign over all things, who directs the course of history, and has established immutable laws. But, hey, you know, if there is no such God, the founder's principles uh, just evolve. And he said, so, so we kept true to the founder's principles by applying them in new ways, responsive to new societal understandings and conditions. Oh, see, society is coming to new understandings. Let's, let's, let's probe this a little bit further. He next says, nowhere has that approach been more prevalent than in construing the majestic but open-ended words of the 14th Amendment, the guarantees of liberty and equality for all. Sounds a little bit like the French Revolution has come to the United States Supreme Court, doesn't it, with its words equality, liberty, and fraternity. Well, that's exactly what's going on. It's a godless view of law, a godless view of history. And then he continues in the very next sentence and says, and nowhere has that approach produced prouder moments for this country and the court. Consider an example Obergefell used a few years ago. Okay, now we're getting into same-sex marriage. So, what he goes on to say, and I'll, I'll skip on down, is he says, if you're going to talk about history, then the only rights we have are those that would have existed in the 17 and 1800s. And, and so, we're stuck. Uh, we couldn't have a right to contraception because, well, contraception wasn't even known then. So, our great and glorious decisions about contraception and, and how they can be uh, handled by us state laws, good or bad. Well, see, um, I, I guess uh, if we're going to be stuck with history, then, uh, you know, electric chair would have to be cruel and unusual because they didn't have electric chairs in the 17 and 1800s. But I guess you could lop off somebody's head, right? Because that's history. And, and that's why you're seeing people saying, we've got to break with the founders. We're doomed into this old history. We, we, we've got to break on in. And then he says this. He says, either the mass of the majority's opinion is hypocrisy or additional constitutional rights are under threat, like the same-sex marriage, to sodomy. He says, this is what Roe and Casey were really about. He said, they were from the beginning and are even more now 
embedded in the constitutional concepts of individual freedom and of equal rights of citizens to decide on the shape of their lives. Well, not any language in the United States Constitution that talks about you get to decide the shape of your life because um, the Constitution, in part itself, shapes your life unless it means nothing, right? They're, they're, they're getting to this idea of individual autonomy, which is non-biblical, which is a denial of in the beginning God, which is the denial of you shall have no other gods before me. And see, we might say, well, that's what God said to the Christians. No, that's what he was saying to the world, but reminding specifically his people, I am your God. All these other people are wrong. Now take this gospel message that in the beginning there's God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And see, when we allow law to be divorced from God, then we have said there are two laws with two founders, two presuppositions undergirding them, one in which man is the author and one in which God is the author, and Christians have become polytheistic, recognizing two gods. One is the God that makes law for me and maybe my family and for my ecclesiastical institutions like my church, but then there's, there's this other law that governs all civil affairs and, well, it's created by man, and we need for it to evolve to fit our new understandings of man. And that's exactly what he says. He goes on to say, these legal concepts, one might even say, have gone far toward defining what it means to be an American. We've changed the whole idea of what it means to be an American because we've lost the idea that Americans are people who believe that they were made by God in his image and God directs the affairs of men and directs the law towards his ends and his purposes. And while man is blessed and benefited by that, law is ultimately for God's end and God's purposes that he would be glorified, not man. Well, I'm going to stop here today. I hope this has been helpful to you. I pray God would give you wisdom as you think more about perhaps the ways that, that you need to repent in, in areas of your life, maybe as, as you think about politics, uh, maybe, maybe Republicans or Donald Trump or something else has sort of become your God, your Savior, and you're putting too much confidence in man. I, I don't know, but, but I've shared with you that, that while I knew there was a thing called common law, and I, and I knew that the idea was it existed prior to any kind of civil law, and that civil law should uh, reflect that common law, uh, correct its defects, clarify its meanings, I had not seen the common law as the work of God, His providence in the affairs of man directed to His own glorious ends. Well, I hope you'll join me next time as we continue to look at ways in which perhaps we've been engaged in futility and want to make sure that the work and the foundation on which we think we're building is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the eternal and the historical point of integration for all things. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.